This is Due South from North Carolina Public Radio. I'm Jeff Tabiri. After World War II, European countries had hundreds of thousands of surplus weapons, tanks, artillery, and guns. An American entrepreneur wanted to buy them. And in many cases, he gets guns for less than a dollar each. Samuel Cummings then mass-marketed those guns to the public and streamlined a business to ship them. He personally was importing weapons on a scale of hundreds of thousands each year. Guns and America. There are more guns in this country than in any other on Earth. And America is the leader in gun deaths, suicides by firearm, and mass shootings. We are the gun country. And while you're likely already aware of these facts, do you know how America got to this point or who was one of the most influential people in growing the nation's gun market after World War II? The focus of today's Due South conversation is history with an ear toward a fascinating story and small arms dealer that I trust many of you are entirely unfamiliar with, as well as an all-too-familiar story It is killing of an unarmed teen. Joining us on the line from his home in Ruston, Louisiana, is Andrew C. McKivitt, the John D. Winters Endowed Professor of History at Louisiana Tech University. His new book, Gun Country, Gun Capitalism, Culture and Control in Cold War America, is out on November 7th. Andrew, welcome to Do South. Jeff, thanks so much for having me. Set the scene for us. World War II has ended. European countries are decimated. They've lost lots of people. They're in ruins. But in this post-war moment, there is an excess of of firearms. Kind of set the scene for us 75 or so years ago. Yeah, that's right. So Europe is in ashes uh, as a consequence of World War II. Uh, and into this uh, vacuum of, of economic and political and uh, social disruption steps uh, a number of American entrepreneurs who are interested in taking advantage of the uh, gun opportunities that post-war Europe provides. And uh, maybe the most important of these, uh, uh, I argue in in the book, is a a gun capitalist named Samuel Cummings. Uh, Samuel Cummings is, I think, on par with the, the Samuel Colts and uh, the Oliver Winchesters of the 19th century is perhaps the, the 20th century version of, of those folks. And so he's the first uh, gun entrepreneur to after the Second World War to see the, the gun consumer market in the United States as, as filled with limitless possibilities. Uh, and he's the one who worked to make it a market without limits. Uh, and as you mentioned, he is. Uh, most people don't know who he is. Uh, occasionally, he ended up in the newspapers for his uh, international dealings. He was selling major weapons systems and military aircraft to dictators around the world. Uh, but his most important business, the thing that made him rich, that made him millions of dollars, was selling cheap guns to the American consumer. I'm going to read just a, a quick stanza from chapter one of your book chapter is The Dumping Ground. This is a a bit about Cummings. Fresh out of the George Washington University and an 18-month stint with the Central Intelligence Agency as a Korean War weapons analyst, he set about acquiring small arms for pennies on the dollar, arsenal fresh rifles and sidearms, as he described the guns, quote, with Hitler's fingerprints still on them, close quote. Talk to me a little bit about Cummings' And how he arrived at this point 
is he just an entrepreneur? Is he, you use the word opportunist or you used some iteration of that word. Uh, did he just have an ear toward business? How did he end up in Europe where there was this massive surplus of firearms with an expectation or uh, perhaps uh, an appetite for acquiring, which we'll get to in a second, and selling and, and moving just hundreds of millions of dollars worth of guns? Yeah, and I, I, I'm glad you read that quote because it really gives you a sense of his sort of uh, sardonic sense of humor about about his own work and and um, how he thought about it. Uh, you know, he's often um, he comes from a wealthy family in in mainline Philadelphia. Uh, they lose their fortune in the Great Depression, and then as a young kid, he's a tinkerer. Uh, he he liked to boast that when he was five or six years old, he took apart a uh, World War One era machine gun. So he's born in the late 1920s, uh, and so in the aftermath of the First World War, and he's very young through the Great Depression. He's never old enough to serve in the Second World War, and so he gains this experience with firearms uh, by basically f- uh, taking them apart and, and putting them back together. And this begins a kind of lifelong fascination with firearms for him. So I think it's a it's a mix of of a kind of entrepreneurial spirit and ambition, perhaps an ambition driven by a family that was once wealthy, that had lost its wealth. Uh, and perhaps he had a kind of personal uh, uh, mission to, to reclaim that kind of status. But also he was a, he was a gun nerd. Uh, he was just fascinated by firearms. Uh, and so he goes off, as you mentioned, he goes off to the George Washington University after the Second World War. He tours Europe with some friends. He tells the story of this continent littered with the remnants of the war, Hitler's fingerprints still on them, that, that great kind of line. Uh, and then he signs up with the CIA as an arms analyst uh, during the Korean War. And they, they hire him because he's so good, again, because he's sort of a, a gun nerd. Uh, he can look at reconnaissance photographs and identify the weapons that um, Korean soldiers are carrying. Are they carrying Chinese-made firearms? Are they carrying Soviet-made firearms? And it's there that he makes the first connections that get him into the arms-dealing business. Uh, he says at one point he's he's actually sent on a mission with a, a, a team uh, with the goal of buying leftover rifles from from the war in Europe and transferring them to the nationalist government in Taiwan, which had just fled mainland China after the communist mm-hmm. uh, victory in the Civil War. And so he leaves the Civil War and he creates his own business, uh, which he calls Interarms, uh, which will then, over the next couple decades, become the world's largest private arms dealer with Cummings at, uh, at its head. So I want to get into just the scope of interarms here, noting that Cummings, some of this is just very basic economics, right? Buy low, sell high, or or just buy and and sell a little bit higher. Uh, Before we get to the distribution of weapons, give us a snapshot, if you can, of these warehouses in Europe that are filled with rifles and and weapons, uh, just how many are we talking about? And uh, how quickly did Cummings act? And, and it, just give us a sense of his wh- where this was and and how he was purchasing them. Yeah, so we're we're talking about essentially every country in Europe that Cummings would be able to get access to. So everything in sort of Western Europe, countries that had not fallen behind the Iron Curtain. 
and so Cummings sets up business uh, by essentially sending agents to each one of these countries. And sometimes these agents would literally set up an office across the street from the defense ministry of whatever country he's in, knowing that these countries had sitting in warehouses hundreds of thousands of rifles in most cases. And these are countries unlike the United States where you gun ownership is not taken for granted where gun ownership is mostly not protected by uh, constitutional law or by statute. And so these guns really don't have a market in Europe. Uh, and Cummings recognizes that, knows that these guns, one, they can't be sold in Europe, and two, they're, they're expensive to maintain. Just to, to have a, a warehouse full of hundreds of thousands of guns, those guns have to be maintained regularly, each one of them, where they rust and they rot. Uh, you have to have security to watch over these things. Mm -hmm. So knowing the position that these countries are in, and these are countries that are devastated by the war that could really use some money, uh, he would in many cases simply walk into a defense ministry with a suitcase full of cash and say, I'm, I'm here to buy your guns. Uh, however many you have, um, I'll take them. I will, importantly, I will pack them up and ship them, which is an incredibly expensive part of the process given how heavy guns can be. Uh, and that solves a problem for these countries, these countries that that they know they can't distribute these weapons among their own populations. Mm -hmm. uh, they know that um, just simply getting rid of the weapons, in, in some cases, they would uh, um, uh, countries in northern Europe would would ship them out to the middle of the, the North Sea and simply dump them in the ocean. That's expensive, too. Uh, and so Cummings is there to sort of solve that problem. Uh, and in many cases, he gets guns for less than a dollar each. Mm. Um, here we're talking about uh, military rifles. These are the, the biggest seller for him. The biggest uh, one he buys out are the Mauser rifles. So Mausers are, in a sense, they're kind of the, the AR-15 of their era. All right. uh, they're manufactured in a dozen or more different countries, and they're based on an older German military design from the late 19th century. And so uh, every country in Europe, essentially, uh, most countries in Europe have their version of a Mauser, even some from... Latin America. Uh, and so these are the ones he buys up and he, he ships them over to the United States and gets them ready to sell to American consumers. Andrew McKivitt is the author of Gun Country. It's a new book. It'll be out uh, in bookstores in early November. He's also a professor at Louisiana Tech. And we're discussing gun culture in America. We're discussing this fascinating character, Samuel Cummings. I want to stick with something you, you just said. And if this is just a ridiculously idealistic question, then please push back and tell me so. Uh, but uh, theoretically, these countries didn't need to sell all these firearms for pennies on the dollar for a dollar each. And you mentioned the cost of, of, of shipping them out to sea and dumping them, but couldn't they have destroyed them? Or was that just not really ever a, a viable option? I'm not sure about sort of the discussions that took place in these defense ministries when it came to uh, these guns. Uh, in part, it's not that these countries didn't need guns anymore. What's also happening at this moment in the early 1950s uh, is that these countries are joining NATO and the North Atlantic Treaty Organization. They're now becoming uh, permanent military allies with the United States. And with that comes a uh, flood of money and firearms from the United States, updated firearms uh, that are being standardized to new, uh, to new uh, bullet calibers. Uh, most of these old firearms are not going to pass that test. 
Uh, and so it's it's not so much a question of whether they need the weapons or not anymore, but you know, what can they do with them? Um, and uh, if you have this this charming boyish American walking into your office with a suitcase full of cash uh, saying, I'll buy them up for you. I'll solve this problem for you. I'll get them off the continent. You'll never see them again. Uh, I think that's a pretty appealing, appealing offer. We're talking with Professor Andrew McKivitt, a history professor at Louisiana Tech and the author of Gun Country, Gun Capitalism, Culture and Control in Cold War America. I'm Jeff Tiberi. This is Due South. We're talking about gun culture in America, saving uh, perhaps hyper-partisan or polarized elements of this conversation for other times. Today, we're talking about history. We're talking about how America's gun culture came to be. And one of the most important figures in this conversation is Samuel Cummings. We've been discussing his efforts to obtain post-World War II firearms from a number of nations in Western Europe, bring them to the United States, and uh, create a market, influence the market. Uh, And it's worth noting that uh, throughout this time in history, across the last 75 years, uh, the United States and the number of guns here has only increased. Today, the United States has three times as many firearms as Canada, six times as many as Germany. So wherever you may fall on the conversation of guns, it should be agreed upon. There are a lot of them in this country. Professor Andrew McKivitt of Louisiana Tech University has recently authored Gun Country, Gun Capitalism, Culture, and Control in Cold War America. He's your guest here on Due South, and we're uh, discussing this proliferation. So I want to just underscore an important point here, and you note this in the book. There was nothing about Cummings' dealings that were illegal. He wasn't a smuggler or any kind of underground character. He was, in effect, loud and proud, and as you write— He made it a point to follow the letter of the law in every country where he conducted business. So I just want to acknowledge that because this wasn't some secretive or, you know, gray area legal thing. What he was doing was perfectly legal. If you would quantify for a, I'm sorry, go ahead. Oh, no, I was just going to say, yeah, that was important to him because the, 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 the image of the arms dealer was a sort of shadowy figure, right? Who who works in the shadows, who deals with illegal firearms from one group to another. And his argument was, I, I, there's, there's not enough money to be made in that. What's, what's the point of selling illegal arms or arms Mm -hmm. illegally to a group of a thousand insurgents in some country on the other side of the world when I have a market of 10 million, 50 million, 100 million Americans ready to buy my guns and doing so legally. Quantify for us how many guns Cummings was moving during the, the, the this era and just how rich, how wealthy was he getting? Yeah, so it, it's hard to quantify. Counting guns in the United States has always been a complicated thing, unlike in, in some other countries. Uh, we don't have a national registry system. Um, It wasn't until 1968 that the federal government made any real effort to uh, require uh, and track the records of gun manufacturers and gun dealers. Uh, Only with the 1968 Gun Control Act does the federal government really step up those efforts and creates the the modern ATF uh, as we know it. Uh, And so it's always been really hard to sort of track those guns. But what happens in the 1960s is there are a number of congressional committees, uh, the most famous of which is led by a senator from Connecticut named Thomas Dodd. 
Um, he's he's the head of the Senate Juvenile Delinquency Delinquency Subcommittee, uh, which really goes looks deeply into gun sales and gun marketing and gun distribution and the origins of guns. And so that's the best place we we get for, in the 1960s for the first time to trying to figure out how many guns came into the country through people like Cummings. We know Cummings was by far the biggest of these importers. Uh, and so the best estimates that I've seen, the most reliable estimates that I've seen, which then get um, aggregated by a commission that Lyndon Johnson appoints in 1968, is there were probably something in the neighborhood of seven to eight million uh, imports of of these style rifles wow. uh, by 1968 from from the early 1950s to 1968, and Samuel Cummings himself was probably responsible for at least half, if not more, of those. So he personally was importing weapons on a scale of hundreds of thousands each year uh, from about 1954, 1955 until 1968, and the Gun Control Act of 1968 actually. Uh, really cuts off that flow and changes changes um, Cummings' business a great deal because it makes essentially the importation of these kinds of weapons uh, no longer legal. So Cummings single-handedly is responsible for moving millions of firearms during this period in the early 1960s. He becomes a multi-multi-millionaire. Uh, he becomes something of a, an expatriate. He moves to uh, Monte Carlo in in Monaco, and he's he's living his best life. Pick up the story there. Tell us a little bit more about I don't know his his wealth, his extravagance, who he was in American culture at that point. Yeah, that's kind of the amazing thing is is you have this image of the the international jet setting arms dealer living his life out in Monaco, largely to avoid. Uh, American tax collection, but also to make it easier for him to uh, to um, uh, negotiate arms deals in Europe and to administer a kind of logistic system that he puts in place, which in and of itself, if you think about having to move hundreds of thousands of arms a year, you need a real impressive network to do that. And one of the reasons why uh, Cummings and Interarms is so successful and, and he becomes so wealthy is not just because he discovered this market and he was able to buy low and sell high, but also because he built a logistics network to move these firearms, to clean them up, to, in the terms of the time, to sporterize them, which is essentially to take a firearm uh, made and used on a battlefield and clean it up and convert it so that it can be used for for hunting. Now, despite that kind of uh, lifestyle he lived, or what you might expect of that sort of lifestyle, he lived a kind of austere life. He would, no smoking, no drinking, even though he lived in Monte Carlo, no mm. gambling. Uh, he had, he spends most of his life there from the early 1960s right. on. His children are raised there. Uh, despite being this kind of playground for the rich, he would always say that his, his favorite meal was his wife's hamburgers. Uh, he, um, he would, he would, uh, despite being a millionaire many times over, he would take the bus to the airport, uh, when he had to fly out. And so, uh, he, the journalists who knew him at the time and lots of journalists turned to him in the 1950s and 1960s when they want to answer questions about international arms deals. And they're never really asking questions about the American market. They just take that for granted. And so, so much of his work happens below the radar of selling these hundreds of millions of guns to American consumers. But, you know, if they want to know something about a major arms deal from a European country to a, an African country or Latin American country, they'll often go to Cummings, and they would just describe him as very grounded, 
that he was not uh, living this rich playboy lifestyle, but that he was he woke up every morning. He he went to work. He knew uh, he knew what he needed to do each day. He worked hard. He went home and and counted his millions uh, <laughs> and ate his wife's uh, hamburgers. <laughs> because he didn't like the opulent restaurants that were available to him in this beautiful setting uh, that I couldn't afford if I were in Monte Carlo. I want to talk about <laughs> the, right. the mass marketing uh, of this gun culture in this time. But as we get there, I do want to note this. This is just another uh, just another quick stanza, a quick uh, stretch from the book. It's in chapter one, also in the dumping ground. And there are several of these, uh, as I, I spent time with, with your book, Andrew, I call them not a typo passage where like you read it and you're like, is that a typo? And you're like, nope, not a typo. I'm going to read it again. So this is, this is what I want. Uh, I want to share this. In 1965, he shocked a Senate committee when he explained that he owned, quote, the largest private arsenal in the world, big enough to equip 300,000 troops at a moment's notice within mortar range of the capital. He estimated his warehouses in Alexandria held 400,000 rifles and pistols alone. When a writer for Guns Magazine toured the facility in 1959, he described it as an arsenal on the Potomac. Close quote. That's from uh, chapter one of Andrew McKivitt's book, Gun Country, Gun Capitalism, Culture, and Control in Cold War America. Uh, Samuel Cummings, the man who obtained all of these weapons, has them. He has hundreds of thousands of guns, and now he needs to sell them. How does he do that? What is the marketing apparatus? What are the ways in which he seeks to move these to foreign governments and to civilians in our country? Yeah, well, it's twofold, and it, it all begins in those warehouses in Alexandria. It's kind of amazing today if you if you go to the waterfront in Alexandria. It's uh, mm-hmm. million-dollar townhomes. It's, again, restaurants I, I can't afford to eat in. It's <laughs> uh, lots of uh, beautiful entertainment. It's all well-landscaped. Uh, 50, 60, 70 years ago, though, that area was a whole bunch of warehouses housing Samuel Cummings' guns. Uh, and interestingly, right next to the warehouse that housed all the newsprint for the the, the paper for the Washington Post, uh, which would incidentally uh, get that paper from Finland, sometimes on the same ships that were shipping Samuel Cummings' guns. And so from those warehouses, uh, he had two ways of distributing his guns. First was through his own retail business. It was called Hunter's Lodge. Uh, and Hunter's Lodge was, uh, I would say, a really sort of innovative um, consumer institution in the ways that it marketed guns. Um, and it's thanks to Cummings and a handful of other entrepreneurs that gun advertising in this era in the beginning of the 1950s really takes a turn. If you look at gun ads, they're no lo- it's no longer about the gun as a kind of investment, as a, uh, a connection to traditions like hunting or, or family hobbies. Often these older ads would show like a father and a son hunting and the father showing the son the the quality of the gun and how it's a tool for this this uh, long uh, held family tradition. Instead, Cummings ads, the Hunter's Lodge ads uh, are about pure crass consumerism. Uh, Cummings crams dozens of guns on the page. And since they're all war surplus firearms that he's buying up for a dollar or less, they're selling for a fraction of what a brand new rifle would cost from 
a big name manufacturer like a, a Remington or a, a Winchester, which a, a quality hunting rifle at the time in the early 1960s, say, might have gone for $150 or $200. Cummings will sell you a Carcano or a Mauser rifle for $10. Uh, and he would joke about it that it was a it was a throwaway gun. After you bagged your first deer, you could just leave it out there in the woods. Uh, and so this is um, this is how this is the first way in which he he distributes these guns. He sells them him, himself, but more importantly, is he builds a network of distributors and retailers, uh, and he becomes the biggest distributor of firearms to to retailers around the country. And that's not just gun shops. Uh, that's uh, department stores uh, and and even five and dimes and places where uh, today we wouldn't think about going to buy a, a rifle, but uh, in the 1950s it was common to find guns there. And so he builds that network of thousands of retailers where he's able to uh, distribute these firearms. And eventually that he he phases out the the hunter's lodge business. In the early 1960s, or he, he passed, or mid 1960s, he passes it off to some associates, and he instead just focuses on the distribution where the real money is made because each retailer multiplies his sales uh, exponentially. By this time in 1968, one in every three guns sold annually in America was an import. We're talking with Professor Andrew McKivitt, a history professor at Louisiana Tech and the author of Gun Country. So let's pick up the conversation, Andrew, where we were. Uh, and uh, InterArms, uh, the company that Cummings created, has this uh, apparatus of a couple hundred people, and they're moving, uh, they're moving weapons throughout the country. I guess I do want to ask this before I forget. Is there any opposition? Are there any hurdles? Is there anything that is slowing down what they're doing? Or is it emblematic of gun culture in America? And it's, it's really just growing rapidly. Yeah, the short answer is no. This is very much a golden age of gun consumerism in the United States. Uh, it's funny if you read sort of uh, gun forums on the internet, of course, I'm the person who does that. Uh, you'll often come across older folks who remember this era, the pre-1968 era, as a golden age for finding uh, just treasures, essentially gun treasures from around the world. They'll talk about the Mausers or the Carcanos or other firearms uh, that they were able to find and buy in that era, which they could no longer purchase um, after after 1968. But what happens in the early 1960s is the beginning of the what we would think of as the modern gun control movement. Uh, and that really comes out of the Senate, that comes out of the, the aforementioned Senator Thomas Dodd, who's using his powerful position on the Juvenile Delinquency Subcommittee to investigate gun dealers. Uh, he first goes after what to him seems like uh, the social problem. And those are mostly handguns. Uh, there's an important divide or distinction to be made in this era between uh, the impact of handguns as a tool of violence and rifles as a tool of violence. Sam Cummings was importing handguns, but most of his, uh, most of his sales came from those rifles that were in a sense military weapons that had been used on battlefields in Europe. Uh, Thomas Dodd first goes after uh, pistols um, and handguns and, and revolvers, believing that those are causing social problems in urban settings. And so he's often interviewing police chiefs, talking about the consequences of 
handguns flooding into um, cities. Uh, and what he comes to learn is that uh, it's not just the Sam Cummings of the world who is are bringing firearms into the United States, but there are other entrepreneurs who are bringing cheap handguns into the United States. And these are not war surplus weapons. These are not weapons that were used on European battlefields, but weapons that are instead cheaply manufactured in post-war Europe, uh, where sort of fly-by-night companies that had maybe had a bit of experience in metalworking or engineering would be uh, contracted to make cheap handguns. Uh, we're talking about handguns that could sell as cheaply as eight or ten dollars for retail in the United States, uh, and this is the where we see the first real sort of effort to control firearms in the early 1960s, uh, and then it's only after November 22nd. 1963 and the assassination of, of President Kennedy uh, by uh, allegedly Lee Harvey Oswald. That's not a debate I, I prefer to throw myself into. Not today. Uh, but allegedly, that's right, not today. Uh, but having used a Carcano rifle, one that had been imported from Italy, uh, not by Cummings, because Cummings himself then said that he was glad he got out of the Carcano market when he did. He had already bought up all of the quality weapons he wanted from Italy, and, and uh, this was among the scraps he left over afterward. But it's then that uh, Thomas Dodd's committee turns its attention also to long guns, to rifles, and to shotguns. And so that's going to be five years of uh, committee work, of proposed laws that, that stall in Congress, but that eventually pass in 1968. And, and in the lead up to those years, people like Sam Cummings are accelerating their importing, knowing that eventually uh, Congress is going to clamp down on them. And so by 1968, Cummings' warehouses are overflowing um, because he knew that some kind of restrictions were coming. And so once that law hit in 1968, he had years worth of stock that he could still distribute uh, into the 1970s. Grandfather in, get ahead of the curve. Makes sense, again, from a from a business and an economic and uh, just kind of an entrepreneurial psychology. I, I want in a minute to get to some of the motivations for you in writing this book in a um, a more micro story, but but sticking with Cummings, this central figure for a moment, I trust you've given this a lot of thought. And I am, I'm curious if you have, I don't know, an explanation or a hypothesis as to why he is not better known in American nomenclature. Mm -hmm. uh, I think in part because he didn't want to be better known. Um, <laughs> he was a, he was a good uh, self-propagandist. He knew how to present himself to an audience. And he knew that especially when those discussions of limiting the gun market became national uh, by the mid-1960s, that people like him uh, were going to be tarred uh, quite justifiably as responsible for the stockpiling of uh, firearms. And so he, he sometimes talks about those people who get dragged before Thomas Dodd's committee and who really give the gun dealer, the international arms dealer, a bad name. Uh, because they refuse to turn over their records, because they they turn over junk to the committee and claim it's their records, because they pretend like they didn't know they were selling firearms in cities where they weren't allowed to sell firearms. And so I think he intentionally kept a low profile in that way. And when he popped his head up to speak to a journalist and so forth, he really relied on that international man of mystery 
uh, intrigue. And he rather he rather people think about him in that way as sort of an international arms dealer who who moves between nation states and and who operates uh, uh, mysteriously rather than. Uh, you know, a sort of Sam Walton of guns, a man who's selling hundreds of millions of cheap firearms to Americans every year. And I also think we don't uh, hold him up in the pantheon of American uh, gun capitalists, people like the Samuel Colts and the Oliver Winchesters of the world, because by and large, Samuel Cummings did not make guns. Mm. Uh, you can't hold him up as a great, as much as he was a tinkerer and a, sure. an engineer, you can't hold him up as a kind of great uh, American innovator in engineering terms and material terms. He was a pure capitalist and he was really good at that. Andrew McKivitt is the author of Gun Country, Gun Capitalism, Culture and Control in Cold War America. He also teaches history. He's a professor at Louisiana Tech University. That is in Ruston, Louisiana, where he joins us on the line. I want to turn our attention uh, toward Louisiana and uh, the story of Yoshirio Yoshi Hattori, uh, who was an exchange student from Japan, and he was an exchange student in Louisiana 31 years ago. Tell us uh First, uh, well, tell us the story of Yoshi and, and tell us, I, I guess, just a, of the importance to you and your uh, motivation to include that story in this book. Yeah, sure. So so Yoshi's a 16-year-old Japanese exchange student. He's from Nagoya, Japan. And he comes to the United States in the summer of 1992. Uh, he comes to Baton Rouge, Louisiana. He is hosted by a family, uh, the father and mother, uh, Holly and Richard Haymaker, are uh, uh, professors at Louisiana State University, and he has a host brother. His name is Webb Haymaker. He's about the same age. Uh, Yoshi comes in the summer of 1992, and he spends a, f uh, a couple months here in the United States, and um, uh, he's well-liked. Uh, everybody uh, talks about how he, um, he was a great dancer. He made a lot of friends in school based on his sort of dancing because his, his English wasn't terrific, although he could communicate well enough in English. Then one night in October 1992, he and Webb Haymaker, his, uh, his host brother, they're looking for a Halloween party. Uh, they drive out to a neighborhood called Central uh, looking for the party, and they, they mix up the numbers of the address. So they see a house, and it's decorated for Halloween. They're not quite sure they're at the right place. It's about 7.30, 8 o'clock at night, so it's dark at this point. They go up to the doorbell. They go up to the door. They ring the doorbell, uh, and nobody comes, and they start to leave. Uh, they're walking away, and they hear the carport door open up. Uh, and they look and they see a woman peek her head out and she screams and slams the door. Yoshi had said at that point, we're here for the party. And so they're confused, sort of nonplussed, and they, they make their way back to their car. Uh, they hear the door open again and they see a man standing there uh, in silhouette. Uh, it's hard to see what he's holding in his hand. Yoshi apparently didn't quite see it, but Webb had an idea of what was going on. Yoshi started to approach very quickly up the driveway, uh, saying, we're here for the party, we're here for the party. Uh, seconds later, the man standing in the doorway, his name was Rodney Piers, a 31-year-old uh, butcher at the local Winn-Dixie. He pulls the trigger on his 44 Magnum uh, Smith & Wesson handgun. And it sends a bullet crashing through Yoshi's chest. Uh, he's dead within uh, before he arrives at the hospital. Um, this was a story I didn't know anything about uh, until I arrived here in Louisiana. So my first book had 
nothing to do with guns. It was about consumerism and consumption between the United States and Japan in the 1970s and the 1980s. So I was interested in Americans buying and, and using things like Japanese cars and, and VCRs. I was wrote a lot about anime, that's Japanese uh, cartoons, essentially, and American fans of them in the 1970s and the 1980s. So when I arrived in Louisiana, I asked myself, what does Louisiana and Japan have in common? Like, what? how can I sort of contribute or learn from uh, this new place I've come to? So I think I started with something as simple as a Google search for Louisiana and Japan. And I came across Yoshi's story. And what really struck me about it was not that this was another sort of horrific tragedy in a nation full of horrific tragedies. At this point, by the time Yoshi's killed, we're talking about 30,000 Americans killed with guns each year. But it was the international response to it. As someone trained to, to write about international history, uh, the response in Japan to this killing uh, was really remarkable. It becomes known as the Freeze case, mm. uh, and it, it gains national attention, and it becomes a part in some ways of, of U.S.-Japan relations at that moment. So there are many ways, many places to go from here, but it's, it's truly this clash of cultures. And a couple of things I just want to, to note here, just to, to kind of set the framing of this and why Yoshi's death was viewed as so unbelievable in many pockets and corners of Japan. How, like, how can this even be something that transpires? One other thing that I think it's important to point out in the United States, there are often about two steps to getting a gun. Uh, and sometimes it's just one step buying the gun, but sometimes you need to pass a, a background check that includes, you know, criminal convictions and um, immigration status, things like that. For context, for comparison's sake, in Japan, there are 13 steps to getting a gun. I won't read them all, but you have to, I'm just going to read several of them. You have to join a hunting or a shooting club. Um, you have to do an interview with police in which you describe why you need a gun. You have to apply for a gunpowder permit. You have to obtain a certificate from a gun dealer. You have to allow the police to inspect your gun storage, and that storage has to, um, you know, be adequate. You have to have an ammunition locker. Then you have to pass an additional background view. I mean, it is, it is, these are diametrically opposed gun cultures. So in the aftermath of Yoshi's death, tell us what, if anything, transpired. Well, the, the reaction in Japan is, uh, is, is just pure horror. How could something like this happen? How could a society allow this sort of thing to happen? How could a society sanction anyone answering their door, coming to their front door when somebody knocks or rings the doorbell, and uh, doing so armed? Um, uh, the, 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 in, the, in the aftermath of this, there are new warnings in Japan to travelers going to the United States. There's another, a few other notable murders in the United States of Japanese tourists or Japanese students here. Uh, the Japanese foreign ministry uh, publishes a language guide that, that tries to teach Japanese um, tourists, many of whom are familiar with, language, or with English from uh, language classes in school, but mostly a, a rather sort of simplistic language, uh, English, uh, teaching them colloquial phrases like what, what freeze means. Um, because there was a lot of debate, as you said, uh, over this this mis cultural miscommunication. Did Yoshi mean, understand what freeze meant when Rodney shouted it as uh, as as Yoshi approached him? What does stick 'em up mean? These sorts of things. And so America gets 
uh, affirmed or confirmed its reputation as the gun country is confirmed in Japan as a consequence of this. And this reaction only intensifies eight months later, May 1993, when a jury of his peers in East Baton Rouge Parish finds Rodney Pierce um, not guilty of manslaughter charges. Uh, they say that he justifiably feared for his life. And once again, Japan asks um, how any civilized country could allow this sort of thing to happen. Uh, but another thing that, that fascinates me about this story is that what comes out of it is a, a kind of international, or we might say in, in my field, transnational movement for gun control. Uh, and that's when uh, Yoshi's parents, Mieko and uh, Masaichi Hattori, um, they connect with Yoshi's host parents, Holly and, and Richard Haymaker, to launch a kind of gun control campaign. Reliving, we're retelling uh, a tragedy that played out uh, in Louisiana 31 years ago with the killing uh, of Yoshi Hattori, a Japanese exchange student who was unarmed and knocked on the wrong door uh, seeking a Halloween party. I, I want to ask, just before we move on, Rodney Pierce, still alive? Uh, yes, as far as I know, um, he uh, has since the uh, the acquittal in 1993. I should also mention that he's found uh, guilty in a civil case in 1994 and is held liable for Yoshi's death and is um, required to pay about $600,000 as a consequence. It's not money he was ever himself ever going to be able to pay off. And so that essentially makes him bankrupt. Uh, I know, as far as I know, he divorces his wife, um, Bo uh, Bonnie, that was her name. She was the one who shouted for him to get the gun. Uh, and the last time I'd heard anything, uh, occasionally the local media sort of checks up on him every so often. We have an anniversary of Yoshi's death. Last year was the 30th. Uh, they check in with him and, and he just uh, has no interest in, in speaking to the media. So as far as I know, he, he is still around. He would be uh, in his mid-60s at this point. Andrew, you mentioned... Yoshi's parents and Japan, you mentioned his host family here in Louisiana. Take us through what transpired there. Yeah, in fact, uh, immediately after Yoshi's death at the, the memorial service for him in, uh, in Japan, uh, his parents, Mieko and Masaichi, they begin a, sig a signature campaign. Uh, they start handing out flyers to uh, the hundreds of people who come to mourn Yoshi, and they ask them to collect signatures uh, among their friends in Japan with the goal of asking the United States government to not just do something about gun ownership, but more along the lines of, of, of Japan's approach to guns, eliminate guns from society. The gun is the problem, is their argument. We often hear uh, you know, gun rights activists say the gun is not the problem. Uh, for for the the Hattori's, it, the gun was the problem, uh, and in fact they were they were very sort of merciful and forgiving toward um, uh, Pierce himself, and said we don't blame Rodney Pierce. Rodney Pierce is a victim of a gun culture of a society that puts the gun first and foremost uh, above human lives. Uh, and so this gun control campaign that they begin, they collect two million signatures in Japan. Uh, which is pretty extraordinary. Think about Japan's about 120 million people. So, so two million, one out of every six people, or one out of every 60 people in Japan, uh, signs this petition. Um, they they connect with Yoshi's host family in the United States, the Haymakers. Uh, Richard Haymaker himself takes a year off work to to build uh, an organization called Louisiana Ceasefire. It's one of a number of state 
level ceasefire organizations. He's connecting with national and, and international activists. And what interests me about this is not not that they succeed, because they don't succeed, because in part this is a story about polarization already being set in so rigidly and statically 30-some-odd years ago. What's interesting to me is that their argument is that the rest of the world's liberal democracies, they don't live like this, and we don't have to live like this either. We don't have to have 30,000 lot. We don't need to lose 30,000 lives every year as a consequence of our gun culture. And it's a compelling argument, the idea that there are solutions. Japan, for instance, shows us how to create a society without gun violence. But of course, the answer is no guns. Mm. There's fewer than a million guns in Japan. They're very heavily regulated. Handgun ownership is almost unknown. But for the Hattori's and the haymakers in the context of a United States, which at that point had some 200 million guns. That's not an argument that's that's going to make uh, that's going to get through to anyone. Yoshi Hattori would have turned 43 years old on November 22nd. Stick with me here. This is a serious question I'm about to ask. Uh, America is very much a tastemaker for consumerism worldwide. Food, clothes, cars, entertainment, technology, among plenty of other examples. And America drives so much of the world's consumer habits. Yet the world has not followed as it pertains to guns and firearms. But I'm curious as to why you think it hasn't followed. Why hasn't America's gun culture permeated uh, elsewhere? It's a really good question. And um, I'm not sure the premise is is 100% true. Now, in terms of the the mass participation in gun culture, of course, uh, almost no other country is is equivalent. Perhaps the only other country that comes close is Brazil. Fair. Although there are other countries with higher higher concentration uh, of of guns per capita than than Brazil. But uh, you know that is in part a consequence of a concerted effort by gun makers and the National Rifle Association since the 1990s to do that thing explicitly to spread American gun culture around the world. Uh, this has, in fact, been an organi- a goal of the organization. Uh, they've set up um, arms, essentially, of the National Rifle Association, national uh, gun gun rights organizations in, in many countries. They began in kind of the Western Hemisphere in Canada. Um, but you're certainly right that nothing exists on the scale and perhaps even qualitatively like like uh, the, the American market and mythology of, of guns. And, you know, for that, we might just point to the Second Amendment. And I'm, I'm uh, you know, historians who write about the Second Amendment have a lot to say about it. I argue this in the book. I think our our Second Amendment today is driven by a com- uh, a, a, a combination of the the mass consumer market for firearms after the Second World War, just the near limitless possibilities uh, pushed by people like Samuel Cummings, mixing with our Cold War culture of the 1950s and the 1960s, the sort of sense that existential threats lurked everywhere, whether it was from the communists abroad or communist subversives among us, uh, who then become uh, black participants in mm-hmm. urban uprisings in the 1960s, who are who are portrayed in the same way. The letter signing campaign that took place in Japan, how was it received 
what what uh what followed there? I think you had mentioned or or uh, I had mentioned that on on uh, it was a week before Yoshi's 18th birthday or what would have been Yoshi's 18th birthday and the 30th anniversary of the Kennedy assassination kind of remarkable that Yoshi's birthday was on uh, November 22nd a week before that in 1993 uh, Masaichi and Mieko they meet with President Clinton uh, and the the haymakers are there as well. Um, they're able to draw on some political connections they have to present him with these um, signatures. And the haymakers are, they're very smart people and they know how this might play in a country that is historically xenophobic, that is historically racist, and a country that you know, just four decades earlier, five decades earlier, was in a war against Japan. Um, they know that the, the uh, gun uh, control opponents could play up that sort of racist angle. And they're, they're absolutely right. Um, the gun rights movement, when it notices what the Hattori's are doing, uh, they say that this is an effort to undermine our democracy. They even use sort of racist language they draw upon from the war, that this is a sneak attack on uh, American gun rights. Um, uh, and um, so, so yes, that reaction is there. The haymakers uh, are very attentive to the ways that race um, uh, intersects in so many different ways in their gun control movement. Um, and, you know, perhaps it's one reason why, why things don't take off. As one uh, of the jurors said in the, the, um, the Pierce trial, uh, in the aftermath, uh, reflecting on the Hattori's uh, campaign, um, I don't want those foreigners telling me what to do. And a young, unarmed person of color knocking on the wrong door, getting shot, losing his life. This is not a story that was unique to 1992, and it's something we're still hearing about today. That's right. Andrew McKivitt is the author of Gun Country, Gun Capitalism, Culture and Control in Cold War America. He is also a professor of history at Louisiana Tech University, and he has been our guest here on Do South. Andrew, thank you so much for the time. Jeff, thanks so much for having me. I really appreciate this. You've been listening to Do South on North Carolina Public Radio, WUNC. Remember that you can learn much more about our show and find past episodes by visiting DoSouthRadio.org. You can also listen to us on that old-fashioned terrestrial radio weekdays at 10 a.m. Find that stream at WUNC.org. Thanks for listening.